welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. The last episode we published was a replay of my 2017 conversation with Gloria Mark, and it was released in honour of her just having published her book on research that she and her collaborators over the years have done called Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness and productivity. And I suggested that one of the reasons that I wanted to do that re-release was because it was interesting to see how she was talking about some of the early work that she was doing then in 2017 around attention. And it's interesting to see where that work has been able to develop and to continue to the point where she's now been able to produce what's seeming to be a really popular book. And my other agenda for re-releasing it was to make a guilty confession. And This confession comes from my reviewing Hall of Shame. And I share this story with the express permission of Victor Gonzalez and Gloria Mark, who are the co-authors of the paper uh, that I will be talking about here. So I was an AC on the program committee, AC being associate chair, for a major conference in our research area, and this was in 2004. I was relatively new to this whole game of being a a reviewer and an associate chair, but I was also not a novice. So I was cocky enough uh, to be able to argue my case, whereas I know that in earlier years I would have been just dying of mortification and, and really not wanting to put myself forward in any program committees. So I was sort of at this interesting, uh, still relatively junior really, uh, but still, but also with enough experience that I thought I could step up. And the reviewing process for this conference took place in 2003 for publication in 2024. And I was somehow, I can't remember exactly my role, but I was part of um, the team or the people managing a paper that was first authored by Victor Gonzalez, who is a PhD student of Gloria and and Gloria is a co-author. And I was arguing strongly for rejection. And it was very rigorous work based on a huge amount of data generated from a huge amount of field work. They'd been doing extensive Um, and and Victor in particular doing extensive shadowing and observation of people at work in their real environments. And um, they were using some of the techniques from time management studies about capturing the really fine details and timings of what people were doing. And this work took place over seven months. It involved observing 14 people for three to five days and a total of 477 hours of observations. Plus they did uh, two-hour qualitative uh, interviews with each of those people some days after their observation. And the paper entailed really rigorous analysis 
and quantified in great detail the time spent on different tasks and the interruptions that people had in the task switching that came up. And one of the big uh, contributions, innovations in this paper was to come up with the notions of working spheres. So I'll, I'll provide you with the link to the paper and you can read it if you're interested. But nonetheless, I argued for rejection. You see, I am, and, and even more so then, a qualitative researcher through and through. I love people's stories, as I think that's where a lot of the really interesting data comes from to explain why and how, not just the what. And so my basis for arguing for rejection was that I didn't think they'd done enough with the qualitative data to really understand what was going on for people around the task switching. And I was standing my ground in those discussions. We had really vigorous um, discussions among the committee and we ended up being sent off outside into the corridor as a smaller working group to really try to discuss this further and try to resolve it. To cut a long story short, the paper was thankfully accepted and thankfully because there were other colleagues in the room who argued for the paper and they saved me from myself and it was thanks to them that this amazing piece of research was able to get published then. But I do wonder what influence or sway I might have had in those arguments had I been a bit more senior and making those same arguments, or if the corridor colleagues were more junior and open to being browbeaten by me. We could have come to a very different conclusion to reject. We know that these are the processes of the discussions in many program committees, and I've seen this sort of thing happen before, where it depends on the person in the room who's arguing for or against the paper and how belligerent they can be often in those arguments. And sure, this paper would have been published eventually if we had have decided to reject it from this conference. But at what cost to the researchers involved, to the research community, especially to Victor as a PhD student, because this was really key work to his PhD thesis and to graduating. And it may have been, you know, the timing of this acceptance may have been really important for um having this sort of paper on their CV and getting their next job or pass, even passing their viva. But as I said, thankfully, it was accepted and rightfully it was accepted and I was wrong to argue against it. And it's ended up being um, a, a most highly cited paper and it's been the starting point for many subsequent years of research uh, leading to the book that, that Gloria has written. And to my reviewing shame, the point is that I wasn't judging this work on its own merits. I was judging it on the research that I would have done, not on the research that was in front of me. And of course, it can be a very different research project to do that more qualitative research building on the quantitative data. And they certainly did go on and do lots of other research in this vein. But this paper was 
not the, the qualitative research focus was not the main emphasis of this paper. And this paper was based on huge amounts of data, as I said, with really rigorous analysis and made really important, unique contributions in its own right. And I tell this story to, to do sort of two reflections um, because our reviewing system is heading to being broken where we have more and more publication venues, uh, increased demand for reviewers, increasing importance of metrics in terms of publications and competitiveness that we've seen discussed. And this reflection also comes in the context of um, in in one week, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I, I was had the opportunity to talk to one of our government agencies who were looking at possible reforms of the research evaluation system and uh, gathering input for how to do this. So in that meeting with them, we talked about the problems and challenges around reviewing, both in terms of getting quality reviews written and the challenges for reviewers in taking appropriate stances. And also coincidentally, the same week, I attended um, a Life in Academia seminar series hosted by colleagues at University of Oldenburg that I'd highly recommend. And in this particular week, Edward Lee talked from Berkeley University talked about the toxic culture of rejection in computer science. And this was based on a blog article that he'd written of the same title. So against this sort of backdrop, I'd love in the first instance to remind me and to remind all of us to be really much more reflective about our own biases when we come to reviewing colleagues' work. We are in positions of enormous power as reviewers, in some cases to make or break careers. We know that especially as we're in this age of metrics and increasing hyper-competitive cultures around, culture, around publishing, that um, numbers matter for CVs at the moment and that acceptances matter. And they can have real impacts for people, especially for younger people and their career paths. So I think we need to just be really reflective about reviewing the work that's in front of us and looking for the arguments as presented there and their motivations for choice of methods. Recognise our own biases and our own preferences for our own style of research and in recognising that as well, explicitly putting that aside to judge the work in front of us on its own merit for its own contributions. And what might some of these biases look like? Well, I was clearly demonstrating a qualitative, quantitative divide sort of bias in, in my arguing for rejection of this paper, as I said to my shame. And, and that's often a common uh, bias and that sort of often plays out in terms of critiques of numbers of participants in qualitative work without understanding uh, the paradigmatic sort of uh, position from which that work is done. But I also suggest that there are sometimes even more subtle biases that we're often not aware of and that I've seen play out. And uh, this can be even within, say, a qualitative research paradigm. 
because not all qualitative research is done from the same paradigmatic philosophical stance. And we'll often see people comment on Facebook or wherever about uh, complaining about reviews where they've been asked for in qualitative research for where's their interrater reliability in code books. And this is a completely fine question for qualitative research that's informed more from a post-positivist stance. But it's totally inappropriate if we're talking about qualitative research, for example, from a more constructivist stance where the subjective uh, you know, a researcher is very much a part of the construction of knowledge. It's not about finding independent truth in the data. The very influential authors and uh, psychologists, Brown and Clark, who, who developed reflexive uh, thematic analysis, talk about this, for example, as little Q and big Q qualitative research. So we need to be reflective in many ways about all our subtle biases. And we need to remind ourselves to be generous, to look for contributions and look for allowing a diversity of paradigms of research method choices of contribution types. The, um, the other thing is just reflecting on all this in terms of the broader critiques that are emerging, especially more recently, around reviewing. There's a very interesting paper published by Axel et al. in 2021 that did this rigorous review of, the, of um, what they've analysed as the global review effort in 2020 for research uh, grant funding. And they estimate that there's over 100 million hours of researcher effort, that's 15,000 years, spent on reviewing research proposals. And yet we have, and at the same time, we have other research that points to the ways in which these reviews and the, the granting of research funding is inherently flawed. So Nesta, a UK innovation agency for social good, there's an interesting article that I'll reference here on the webpage that talks about um, research grant funding inherently flawed because it's biased against radical new thinking and against different types of geographies, ideologies, and gender issues. Moore et al., a 2016 paper, also talks talk about a bias towards conformance and social connectedness over innovation in, in critiquing reviewing. And interestingly, they also go on to point out that there's generally a poor relationship when they look at analyses that are done after grants have been funded a generally poor relationship between high ratings in grant competitions and the subsequent productivity coming out of those grants. And as I said at the, earlier, there's just the very pragmatic issue of the challenge of finding good quality reviewers uh, to, to actually contribute to this, this huge amount of service workload that we're asking of our peers, of our communities. And that's research, that's time spent reviewing, talking about research, not actually doing research. And we, we know that every time we reject a paper, 
it's usually there's some essence of really good work there and that rejected paper is likely to be resubmitted and yet more reviewers being asked to review that paper and increasing overall the reviewer burden, the workload. We have sort of a telling example in our um, the key conference uh, in our human-computer interaction area, which is the CHI conference, which is currently going through the review cycle. And they had over 3,000, nearly 3,200 submissions that involved in total nearly 12,000 authors. And to manage this, there's a committee of 400 associate chairs, which are like associate editors if it was a journal, and they're managing nearly 4,000 reviewers and nearly 13,000 reviews. And the typical acceptance rate at this conference often tends to be around the, the low mid-20s. So around six, 700 papers ultimately being accepted out of those nearly 3,200 submissions. So that's a big demand we're making on our peer community. And I think it's time that we need to radically rethink our peer reviewing and publication practices if it's going to be sustainable in the long term. And it also means reviewing, radically rethinking our research evaluation practices so that we put much more of the emphasis on quality. And I know that many of the research evaluation reform initiatives like Dora, Koara, and so on, um, are really trying to argue for quality over quantity. And this change takes time to come through. And there are many other ways we could think about um, changing our, our reviewing and publication practices. So I invite us to, uh, to wrap up here, um, to be more reflective of our own individual role and uh, our exertion of our own power as reviewers for papers, and also to be part of rethinking how we might do reviewing better and and more sustainably in the long term. And in the long run, I'm just so happy to have had strong colleagues, as I said, who saved me from myself. Nonetheless, this is in my review hall of shame. And I did learn a big lesson from that. I hope it helps you just reflect on your own practices too. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen. Thank you.